If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. In 1964, esteemed author Robert Penn Warren wrote the book, Who Speaks for the Negro? To prepare for the book, Mr. Warren spoke with dozens of the most prominent civil rights leaders in the country, including Minister Malcolm X, James Baldwin, and Dr. King Jr. himself. Those hours of audio tapes can be found online at the University of Kentucky Archives at KentuckyOralHistory.org. We are grateful for the generosity of the University of Kentucky to allow us to share with you these rare audio recordings. We'll begin with the interview of Dr. King. Do you see your father's role and your own role at historical phase of the same process? Yes, I do. I think uh, my father and I have worked together uh, a great deal in the last few years trying to grapple with the same problem. And uh, he was working in the area of civil rights uh, uh, before I was born and when I was just a kid. And I grew up in the kind of atmosphere that had uh, a real civil rights concern. And I do think it's the, the, the same problem that we are grappling with. It's uh, uh, the same historical process. And if, if this is what you mean, I think so. That is, there are vast differences, of course. Uh, in techniques and opportunities and climate of opinion, all of those million things that are different from one generation to the other. But you see this, I see a continuity in the process and not a, not a sharp division between roles, yours and his. Uh, yes, I see a continuity. I, I don't think there's a sharp, there are certainly minor differences, but I don't think there uh, is any sharp difference. I think basically uh, the roles are the same. Now, uh, I grant you that at uh, points uh, my father did not come up under the discipline of the nonviolent philosophy. He was not uh, 
really trained in the nonviolent discipline, uh, but uh, even without that, uh, the problem was about the same, and uh, even though the methods may not have been consciously nonviolent, they were certainly nonviolent uh, in the sense that he never and never advocated violence as a way to solve yeah, the problem. Yeah. What is the next phase of, shall we say, for lack of a better uh, phrase, the Negro movement mm -hmm. in general sense? Well, I think uh, if there is a next phase, it will be. Uh, nonviolent direct action, working through the courts and working through legislative processes may be extremely helpful in bringing about a desegregated society. But uh, when we move into the realm of actual integration, which deals with mutual acceptance, a genuine intergroup, interpersonal living, then it seems to me that uh, other methods uh, will have to be used. And uh, I think that the next phase will be the phase that really grapples with the, the, the methods that must be used to bring about a thoroughly integrated society. In that phase, uh, we can certainly see quite clearly responsibilities that belong uh, to the white man and obligations. Mm -hmm. Now, what problems, responsibilities, and obligations would you say the Negro would have in this relationship, in this third phase? Well, I would think this would be uh, the phase, uh, the responsibilities of the Negro in this phase would be in the area of what Mahatma Gandhi used to refer to as constructive uh, work, his constructive program, which is a program whereby the individuals work desperately to improve their own conditions and their own standards. Uh, I think in this phase, after the Negro emerges in and from the desegregated society, then a great deal of time must be spent in improving standards, which lag behind to a large extent because of segregation, yes. discrimination, and the legacy of slavery. But it seems to me that uh, the Negro will have to engage in a sort of operation bootstraps in order to uh, lift these standards. And I think by raising uh, the, these lagging standards, uh, it will make it uh, much more, uh, well, I, I would say much less difficult uh, for him to move on into the integrated society. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, a prominent newspaper man said to me, a southerner by birth, thank God for Dr. King. See, he's our only hope. He was worrying about uh, violence. Now, this is very often said by uh, white people. Dr. Kenneth Clark has remarked in print that your appeal to many white people is because you love them to some sense of security. And I hear, too, that there's some uh, resistance, automatic emotional resistance on the part of Negroes because they feel that your leadership has somehow given a, not, quote, sellout, but a sense of a, a soft line, a rapprochement that flatters uh, the white man's sense of security. 
do you encounter this, and how do you how do you think about this? How do you feel about these things, assuming they're true? Well, I don't agree with it naturally. Uh, I think uh, first one must understand what I'm talking about and what I'm trying to do when I say uh, love, and that the love ethic must be at the center. Uh, of this struggle. I'm certainly not talking about an affectionate emotion. I'm not talking about what uh, uh, the Greek language would refer to as eros or phileo. I'm talking about something much deeper, and I think there's a misunderstanding. Uh, I do not think uh, violence and hatred can solve this problem. Uh, I think they will end up creating many more social problems than they solve. And I'm thinking of a very strong love. I'm not, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of love in action and not something where you uh, say love your enemies and just leave it at that. But you love your enemies to the point that you're willing to sit in at a lunch counter in order to help them find themselves. You're willing to go to jail. And I don't think anybody could uh, consider this uh, cowardice or even a weak approach. So I think that yes. uh, many of these arguments come from from those who have gotten so caught up in bitterness that they cannot see the deep moral issues involved. All revolutions, as far as I know, in the past uh, have had the tendency, even the expressionist tendency, to move toward a centralized leadership. This revolution, if we call it one, does is not following that pattern, though we see the tendency to uh, focus on single leadership. Can a revolution survive without this symbolic focus, even if not without, even if without a literal focus on the single leadership? I think uh, a revolution can survive without this uh, single centralized leadership, uh, but I do think there must be centralized leadership in the sense that, say, in our struggle, all of the leaders uh, coordinate their efforts, cooperate, and, and at least uh, evince a degree of unity. Now, I think if we say if all of the major leaders in this struggle were at, uh, at war with each other, then I think uh, it would be very difficult to make this uh, social revolution uh, the kind of powerful revolution that has proved to be. But the fact is that we have had, on the whole, a unified leadership, although it hadn't been just one person. And I think there can be a collective leadership. Maybe some symbolize the struggle a little more than others, but uh, I think it's absolutely necessary for the leadership to be united in order to make the revolution effective. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of Robert Penn Warren's interview of Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks to the University of Kentucky right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue now with Robert Penn Warren's interview of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from the audio archives of the University of Kentucky. Let me ask one more question. When you were assaulted 
It's very hard on those that reconstruct one's own feelings. Uh, what did you feel? What were your first uh, actual reactions uh, at the moment of the, to the, well, say the eggs and so forth? Can you reconstruct that? At, at first, this was a very uh, depressing response. Uh, because I realized that these were my own people. These were Negroes throwing eggs at me. And uh, I guess you do go through those moments when you begin to think about what you are going through and uh, the sacrifices and suffering that you face as a result of the movement, and yet uh, uh, your own people... Uh, don't have an understanding and uh, are seeking, uh, are not even an appreciation and seeking to destroy your image at every point. But then it was very interesting. I went right into church and I spoke and I started thinking not so much about myself but about the very people, the society that made people respond like this. It was so interesting how I was able very quickly to get my mind off of myself and feeling sorry for myself and feeling rejected. And I started including them into the orbit of my thinking that it's not enough to condemn them for doing this, uh, this uh, engaging in this act. But what about the society and what about the conditions that are still alive which made people act like this? And uh, I got up and spoke and mentioned this, and the people uh, were almost, uh, they didn't, I told them about the experience, because many of them in the church didn't know about it, and I got up and told them, and they were, they didn't quite know how to respond when I said, uh, I told them what happened, I said, but you know, the thing that concerns me is not so much the young men, I feel sorry for them. Uh, I'm concerned about the fact that maybe all of us have contributed to this by not working harder to get rid of the conditions, uh, the poverty, the social isolation, and all of the conditions that cause individuals to respond like this. We are listening to the audio files recorded in 1964 by Robert Penn Warren, who wrote the book, Who Speaks for the Negro? In the interviews, which can be found online at the University of Kentucky's archives at KentuckyOralHistory.org, Mr. Warren spoke with civil rights leaders about their impressions of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Here now is our producer, Paul Woodhall. Dr. Kenneth B. Clark was a psychology professor who dedicated much of his adult life fighting against school segregation. In fact, it was Dr. Clark's research that provided the foundation for the Supreme Court's unanimous ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka. In that landmark decision, the court confirmed that racially segregated schools were inherently unequal. Dr. Clark challenged Dr. King's adherence to nonviolence and King's strong belief in loving one's enemies, writing, The natural reaction to injustice is resentment. The form that such resentment takes need not be overtly violent, but the corrosion of the spirit seems inevitable. It would seem, therefore, that any demand that the victim of oppression be required to love those who oppress them places an additional and intolerable psychological burden upon the victim. 
Robert Penn Warren asked many of the civil rights leaders he interviewed in 1964 to react to Dr. Clark's statement. Their answers provide a panoramic view of what Dr. King's civil rights peers thought of his philosophy of nonviolence. Malcolm X was an African-American Muslim minister and human rights activist who was a prominent figure during the civil rights movement. A spokesman for the Nation of Islam until 1964, he was a vocal advocate for black empowerment and the promotion of Islam within the black community. Well, see, now, nonviolence with Dr. King is only a method. That's not his objective. No, it's not his objective. Well, his objective, I think, is to gain respect for Negroes as human beings. And nonviolence is his his method. Well, uh, my objective is the same as King's. Now, we may disagree on methods, but we don't have to argue all day on methods. Forget the methods or the differences in methods. As long as we agree that the thing that the Afro-American wants and needs is is recognition and respect as a human being. Milton Gallimason was a Presbyterian minister who served in Brooklyn, New York. As a community activist, he championed integration and education reform in the New York City public school system and organized two school boycotts. Dr. Clark is a psychologist, and it would just seem to me that a psychologist of all people would know that hate is a consuming passion and that hate does as much harm, if not more, to the individual who entertains that hate, who internalizes that hate, than it does to the objects of the individual's hatred. That when we are motivated by hate or any other consuming passion, we do not function objectively. Uh, We do not uh, function realistically, as it were. And that no man can afford to live uh, motivated by hate. In other words, let me put it this way. It's, it's, it's one thing if uh, an enemy tries to destroy you, but he has driven you to the supreme destruction when he can drive you to self-destruction, which is a consuming hatred of him or of anybody else. I would also add that one can act against a wrong or an injustice or an enemy without hating the enemy. That is the fact that I do not hate the person who uh, is exercising some kind of evil against me doesn't mean that I can't rise, rise up and, and, and fight him and defend myself against him and move to correct the injustice that I think needs righting. I mean, it does, in other words, activity doesn't have to be born of hatred. James M. Lawson is an American activist and university professor. He was a leading theoretician and tactician of nonviolence within the civil rights movement. Now, if Dr. Clark is defining the nonviolent approach simply as passivity, or as some persons have conceived it, trying to ignore either one's own feelings and personal hatred and hostility, and or ignore the presence of violence and injustice. Now, if, if he's defining nonviolence that way, then I would quite agree with him. But if, on the other hand, he's willing to accept what is Dr. King's definition of nonviolence, namely that of creative Christian love, 
that comes from the inside of a person, that, that, that in a sense heals a person inwardly and enables him then to really be a free man. If you, if you try it in these terms, as we define it, uh, on the contrary, he is ignoring the fact that out of this real definition of the nonviolent approach, we see all the time not only the healing up of anger and fear and guilt on the part of both Negro and white people, but we see remarkable instances of courage. That's genuine courage. I mean, that is courage acting out of a person who is convinced that he must act to help change injustice. William Stuart Nelson was an expert on nonviolence, a civil rights activist and university president who traveled to India to meet with Mahatma Gandhi and mentored Martin Luther King Jr. I'm saying that inherent in man yes. is the possibility of rising above the brute that is also in him. We are both men and animals. Uh, you and I can engage in a brawl and in a fight if we want to and if we permit ourselves to, if uh, our histories have been different from what they were. At the same time, we can embrace each other and sacrifice for each other, give our lives for each other, appeal to what we believe is deep in each other, in the hope that however the one may have offended the other, the other will somehow understand and forgive and uh, hope that that offense uh, will never be repeated. I'm saying there is that in us as well as the brute in us. No man knows what is in man, absolutely. But I'm willing to commit my life to the assumption that in every man there is the possibility this finer self, affection, love. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of audio files recorded in 1964 by Robert Penn Warren, who wrote the book, Who Speaks for the Negro? Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue now with the audio files recorded in 1964 by Robert Penn Warren, who wrote the book, Who Speaks for the Negro? In the interviews, which can be found online at the University of Kentucky's archives at KentuckyOralHistory.org, Mr. Warren spoke with civil rights leaders about their impressions of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Here now is our producer, Paul Woodhall. Dr. Kenneth B. Clark was a prominent psychologist and civil rights activist who took issue with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s stance of nonviolence. In 1964, Robert Penn Warren asked prominent civil rights activists to react to Dr. Clark's disagreeing with King's philosophy of nonviolence. Carl Rowan was a prominent American journalist, author, and government official who published columns syndicated across the U.S., and was at one point the highest-ranking African-American in the United States government, serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for President John F. Kennedy. Uh, I think that to ask uh, the victims of oppression to love their oppressors may uh, have some merit only from a propaganda point of view, uh, from the point of view of affecting American public opinion. 
But I think that in terms of the reaction of the American Negro, that it's really a wishful thinking to assume that for any, uh, that in any really meaningful sense, the Negro is going to love his oppressor. I don't know of any group of people in human history who ever uh, really love their oppressors, and I don't think the Negro is such a superhuman. Well, now let me say this. Because of one man's personality, or because of one man's uh, ability as an orator to appeal to the people he's leading, he may indeed be able to prevent them from resorting to violence under the greatest of provocation at a given time. But this does not mean that, that he has induced those people uh, to love their oppressors. They may be filled, their hearts may be filled with bitterness and the utmost of contempt. But at the same time, under the, the spell of leadership of this particular man, they may simply have been induced not to let this uh, contempt manifest itself in overt physical aggression. I, I think that its, its validity would be more tactical than, than real in any uh, uh, spiritual sense of the word. Wyatt T. Walker was an African-American pastor, national civil rights leader, theologian, and cultural historian. He was a chief of staff for Martin Luther King Jr. and in 1958 became an early board member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Well, I think the first problem Dr. Kenneth Clark has is that he has a semantic problem. He doesn't really know what we mean by love within the context of a nonviolent revolution. Secondly, he is a man who, and I don't know him very well, so I have to qualify that. I would judge that he has only a naive religious orientation. And for one to understand what we're saying, he must be basically religiously oriented. And he must have some knowledge of what we mean by love. When we say love, we're not talking about an emotional attachment that you like somebody, as I'm sure Dr. King would say. That you recognize this person's worthfulness as a fellow human being, despite what he may do. You may be a hardcore racist. And our point of view is that as that you are misguided or misdirected, a product of your training and education and culture, and uh, that this uh, makes you do the things unto what you do. Now, our point of view is that even at a practical level, the weapons with which I fight you of necessity must neither be physically violent or it must not be a violence of the spirit, because neither will can reconcile us. The only thing they can do is for one or the other or both of us to be annihilated. We have maybe a dangerous optimism about the resiliency of the human spirit. That if it can reflect in enough instances and in repeated terms a kind of heroism uh, or courage, that layer by layer we can peel back the hardcore of what years and years have built up. Now we may not convert in every instance. Uh, or at the moment, but some it may be short-term and others it may be long-term. Some it will, may be never. But uh, Matt Dillon says you can't win them all. But at least my personal moral position is strong because at least I tried. See, Aaron Henry was an American civil rights leader, politician, and head of the Mississippi branch of the NAACP. He was one of the founders of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which tried to seat their delegation at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. We love men not because we like them, not because they like us, not because there's something physically attractive about them, but we love them because God loves them, because the Redeemer of this world that we know about caused them to be created, and we know that he loves everything he created. Therefore, it is up to us to imitate the leader, 
of the Christian faith. As hard as it might be, and as difficult as it might be, we know that freedom is not easy. That without uh, some suffering, there will be no freedom. And I'll go along with Ken all the way in this redemptive kind of love that espouses a love of mankind because God himself made him and he loves him. back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special. I am your host, Nina Turner. Of all the influences on Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, his wife, Coretta Scott King, had one of the greatest impacts. To learn more about their life together as a civil rights team, let's talk with Dr. Barbara Reynolds, the author of Coretta Scott King's memoir, My Life, My Love, my legacy. Dr. Reynolds, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, I am happy to be here. Anytime I can talk about Coretta Scott King, I am ecstatic. Oh, I am ecstatic right with you. And I'm sure that the people who are joining us on this journey will feel the same way we do right now before it's all over. And, you know, before we really get started, I want to ask you about another book you wrote. And the title is No, I Won't Shut Up, 30 Years of Telling It Like It Is. Tell us why you wrote that book. I love that title so much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that. That was mostly my columns while I was an editor and on the editorial board of USA Today and writing for Essence and writing for many publications. But that was my story then, and this is my story now. I'm not going to shut up. <laughs> I love it. That really describes me too, Doc. I mean, you got the title, but man, <laughs> I'm loving it. No, I won't shut up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> love it so much. So let's talk about let's talk about how, you know, Coretta and Martin's entry in the struggle for civil rights. I mean, it would seem that both of them separately were being groomed in some ways to be in the movement. I mean, coming from very religious backgrounds, liberation theology, they both, in a way, almost seemed like to me, Dr. Reynolds, that they didn't have a choice to be on the path that they were on. So what was the dynamic between these two towering figures of American history? Well, you, you hit it uh, uh, spot on. It was like a divine hookup because uh, Coretta was very uh, interested in in civil rights. Um, in, in, in Ohio, for example, she met Paul Robinson, who was a great leader, um, activist at the time, and, and that's where she got her program. She would listen to him, how he would talk about civil rights and then uh, sing. And so she was uh, following him. She was also in the progressive national movement, which was another more um, uh, radical uh, party than uh, the Democrats and Republicans. And at, at Antioch College in Ohio, was was very um, radical in the sense that they even had a motto that you don't have the right to live if you haven't found a cause to die for. And she was um, also uh, in um, the NAACP at her college. So, I mean, she was prepared for him 
and he was prepared for for her. And they came together, uh, not knowing what they were going to do, because uh, when he they married and he got his first job, uh, and that was as, as the Dexter Baptist Church, and he was going to be a preacher, and she was going to be a preacher's wife. Her thought was she was going to see what curtains she wanted, what kind of flowers she wanted to plant. But then here comes the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, Rosa Parks sat down. Uh, people stood up and it, it got around that, that who wanted to be the leader. And they said, well, it's Martin Luther King fellow who's doing such a good job at Dexter. And uh, nobody really knows him, and uh, why not him? And so she um, came along because she felt that it was the right thing to do. And then when she really, really got involved is when the Montgomery bus boycott was to stop the the desegregation on the buses. And when 380 days went by and, and black people, the cooks, the, the, the professors, the doctors, they walked and the white society didn't like that. So they started harassing them, telling them that they were going to kill them because they protested. And so here is when you find out who Coretta Scott King was. Uh, one night, she was at home with her little baby, I think uh, Yolanda was about, I think, two months old. And there, all of a sudden, I mean, she had been getting hate calls. We're going to kill you if you don't stop this, this, this boycott. But she just thought it was talk. So one night, there was this big explosion. Boom! Off the front of the house. And she, she she was near the front, and she saw the the, the the porch was just almost blown off, and she had to run to the back and get her, her baby. And the next day, I mean, the, the town was shook. I mean, the black men came that night, and they really wanted to arm themselves, but Dr. King said, no, we're not violent. But the next day, uh, Dr. King Sr., came to the house and her father, and they said, we are taking you and the baby out of here. You cannot stay here, it's too dangerous. And she said, look, I want to tell you something. She says, you know, I'm married to Martin, but I'm also married to the movement. I'm not going to leave. And uh, Martin, uh, Dr. King eventually said, if she had left, he would have left and maybe it would not have been that famous movement that was the mother of all the other civil rights movements. Dr. King expanded his work to include protesting for the end of the Vietnam War and launching the Poor People's Campaign. Um, tell us how uh, Miss Scott King, Mrs. Scott King, was involved in those efforts. Well, um, the the Vietnam War that was a no-no for civil rights leaders. Um, they all said that talking about the war was not a civil rights issue. And uh, um, she broke the mold because she was campaigning against the Vietnam War way before 
um, Dr. King finally, you know, did give his uh, speech against the war on, I think, in 1967, I believe, at Riverside Church in New York. And so uh, she, you know, uh, was able to um, make Dr. King feel that maybe he didn't have to be out there on that issue because she was. And so that was a time when, um, when um, you know, they could, could each play a different role. Because she was very involved in the peace movement even before she married Dr. King. You know, that was one of her um, big causes to be against the war. And the Poor People's Campaign was, was most the same. You know, she was she was there. You know, she was part of the planning, like she was part of the planning uh, of um, the um, Montgomery boycott. And so they, they were just, um, they were just like two souls with one goal. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Dr. Barbara Reynolds on the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue our conversation with Dr. Barbara Reynolds talking about Coretta Scott King. You know, we are having this conversation as a part of the celebration of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The day Um, you can make the argument, certainly that without Mrs. Coretta Scott King's determination and dedication, that we would not have this holiday today. Well, I want to say that, but I do have to say this. I'm sorry, I have to say it. But when I saw the insurrection on January 6th, um, I thought about the hate again. And I mean, it, it just, I almost went back there in my head. I actually had nightmares that, oh no, not, not again. But let, let me answer your question. She uh, believed and she lived her dream. She believed that the woman that stepped out of the rural area of Alabama to be able to to vote and to, she visited every president in, in her, her area as she became um, um, in the movement. She had relationships with, with uh, George um, uh, W. Bush, the, the son and the father, you know, Clinton, even Reagan. She, had, she, she, she was above, uh, in many ways, um, politics in a way that she saw good in all people. And she, she said, count, count my life as all joy. Yes, I started, you know, as someone who, who didn't have rights to even sit in, on a bus where I wanted to. But, but I'm at a life where people are, are owning bus companies. There are just blacks in Congress. We're voting. We have a life. And she, she you know, she had an um, uh, opportunity to, 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 to know much about Obama. So she knew that the struggle that she went through and what we have to do uh, does bear great fruit. But she says you have to continue to struggle because you can't think what happened in one area will be all you need to just coast. You have to continue to struggle. But she, she had a great joy 
in what she saw, because she also reminded us that white people died for the rights of civil rights as well. It was not just blacks fighting for freedom. There were many white people that joined with the civil rights movement to, to fight. And we saw that again, um, you know, year, uh, last year when young white students and black students again rose together. So she had joy. We wouldn't have a King holiday without her. She, she worked for 15 years to organ, help organize that, that movement. And she did it. This has been the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. You can follow me on Twitter at Nina Turner. Special thanks to the University of Kentucky for the use of the Robert Penn Warren interviews of civil rights leaders in 1964. You can learn more at KentuckyOralHistory.org. The Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special is produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.